Welcome to NYC Now, your source for local news in and around New York City from WNYC. I'm Jared Marcel. Happy Friday. We're headed into the busiest travel weekend of the year, making our way back home from wherever we spent the holiday. And that means there'll be a lot of cars on the road. And not everyone will be sober. In New Jersey, the state Supreme Court has decided it will allow police to keep using disputed, scientifically questionable methods to determine if someone is driving while high. But the court is also placing limits on how those determinations can be used. WNYC's Michael Hill talked with Jelani Gibson, writer for NJ Cannabis Insider. That conversation after the break. On Radio Lab. First, we thought we made some sort of mistake. Two surprisingly simple scientific discoveries. This is crazy. <laughs> I mean, we were just so surprised. That makes us reconsider our assumptions about progress. We need to learn the language of the doctors of that time. We need to be a little bit less dismissive. Staff retreat from Radio Lab. I learned a bit of humility this way. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Just give us a little bit of a background here. What's the issue around driving while high? And are those and how are those determinations made differently than, say, alcohol-related driving under the influence arrest? So basically, just to sum it up in short manner and format, the cannabis legalization that has happened throughout the country and the cannabis legalization that has happened in New Jersey and New York, what happens is one of the first public safety concerns that come up is whether or not there's going to be an increase in traffic fatalities Mm -hmm. due to drug-impaired driving. Now, the data on that varies. In some states, you will see an increase. In other states, you will see a decrease. And in other states, uh, the traffic fatalities will stay relatively unchanged. But what the cannabis legalization legislation has been doing is it has been allocating more money to these drug recognition experts to increase their ranks. Now, in New Jersey, you have the second highest amount of drug recognition experts in the country, and New York also has the third. California has the highest amount of drug recognition experts, which is where the protocol originated. And so now the debate is around whether or not those methods are scientifically valid and whether or not, as a result, it is leading to uh, unjust arrests. And that is what the concerns of the civil rights advocates are. Jelani, I have to ask, how does someone who is a drug recognition expert, what does that mean? How do how, how does that person determine that someone is driving high? And so basically, it's roughly a 12-step process, and they'll do a couple of tests that you may be familiar with when it comes to alcohol. They'll have you stand on one leg. Mm-hmm. They'll, uh, you know, put their fingers out, and you have to follow their fingers. But uh Another part of the process, which is very important here, is they will actually interview and interrogate you as to whether or not you have taken any drugs. And that's where the most controversy here is, is because a lot of uh, public defenders and civil rights activists are saying that the majority of the admissions and positivity rates come from that part of the process during the interrogation process and that everything else that led up to it was essentially confirmation bias. What the prosecutor will argue is that it's harder to catch impaired drivers if you get rid of the drug recognition experts. And then what the counter argument to that is, is, uh, you know, the civil rights and public defender people will say you can use dashboard cameras and other things to prove impaired driving. And so it's a lot of back and forth. So how are drug or DRE recognition experts, how are they trained? 
Yeah, and so that was one of the largest aspects of the trial. And basically, the uh, conclusion that was come to was that since they were trained in a way that was similar to medical technicians, their uh, evidence should be essentially allowed to come into court. And what the counter argument to that was is that it doesn't matter how rigorously trained someone is if they are rigorously trained on mathematically questionable methods. What are the consequences of this ruling, and, and what has the, the court determined in terms of limits? It's saying, okay, uh, we're going to allow this kind of method, but there are limits here. What are the specific limits? And so some of the limits are uh, the state has to make a good faith effort to obtain a toxicology report. It was also suggested that you have to give juries instructions on the limitations of drug recognition experts. Um, And it was also implied that drug recognition experts couldn't flat out come and say that something was caused by drugs. They can only essentially tell someone that your behavior is consistent with someone who had ingested drugs. And so those were some of the caveats and uh, limitations that were put on it. And uh, the dissenting justices essentially uh, dissented along the lines of saying those caveats and limitations weren't enough because it doesn't matter how many guardrails you put around something um, that is not mathematically correct. Jelani, for the record, there's nothing that's being used right now that someone who's suspected of being high can blow into to determine a level of highness or uh, how much they've marijuana they taken or anything like that as you would uh, with alcohol? Well, there are a couple of technologies that are in the works, but I think that what people have to parse out here is that there is a difference between drug use, drug impairment, and how much drug impairment is too much impairment to operate a motor vehicle and what exactly is the safe level or threshold as it relates to cannabis in particular or any other particular drug. And so there's a difference between saying Uh, you have recently used cannabis versus saying um, you have recently used cannabis and the amount of cannabis you have in your system has passed a threshold at which you are able to operate a motor vehicle safely. Mm -hmm. Jelani Gibson covers issues pertaining to marijuana in the Garden State for NJ Cannabis Insider on NJ.com and in the Star-Ledger. Jelani, thank you so much for your time. No problem. That's Jelani Gibson, writer for NJ Cannabis Insider, talking with WNYC's Michael Hill. Back in New York City, a new play at the Public Theater brings light to the story of the city's Lenape people. WNYC's Arun Venegopal has more on Manahata. Mary Catherine Nagel is a playwright and attorney, and years ago she realized that most New Yorkers know next to nothing about the city's Native American history, nor the fact that Manhattan, Manahata, is a Lenape word. There's like a square mile in Queens where more languages are spoken that square mile than anywhere else on Earth. She's really interesting, right? Um, but where is Lenape still spoken? Nagel is Cherokee. Her play, Manahata, emerged from this realization. It has Native American characters, Native American actors, and a few actual lines of Lenape. There's even a Lenape cultural advisor, Joe Baker, of the Lenape Center, whose life's mission has been to make the public aware of Lenape history. It's something that has been noticeably and and with intent erased from the public consciousness of the citizens of New York City and beyond. The play pivots between two eras, 
the 17th century when Dutch settlers first meet, then start killing the Lenape on Manhattan Island. And the 21st century, when an ambitious Lenape woman by the name of Jane Snake climbs the ranks of a Wall Street firm in the midst of the subprime mortgage crisis. It's a play about dispossession, past and present. But it's not all gloom and doom. There are jokes too, like this one, which I asked Nagel to repeat for me. Do you know why Indians can't drink tea? No, why? If we drink too much tea, we will drown in our own TP. Humor and entertainment in general serve a higher purpose for Nagel. Because historically, arts and entertainment have been used to dehumanize us. And so I'm hoping to use arts and entertainment to rehumanize us. Manahata is part of a cultural wave bringing Native American stories to public attention. The Thanksgiving play by Larissa Fasthorse opened on Broadway earlier this year. The TV series Reservation Dogs was named one of the best shows on television. And Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which journeys into the Osage murders of the 1920s, is being hyped as an Oscar favorite. For Joe Baker of the Lenape Center, all of this has been deeply affirming. As a child in Oklahoma, his great-grandparents shared their own family tales with him. They were uneasy stories. His family land, he discovered, had been illegally seized by white entrepreneurs and oil companies. In the process, his grandmother was poisoned and his uncle murdered. Today, Baker is 77 and says he thinks the work of Native American storytellers is beginning to bear fruit. I know when we started this work at Lenape Center 14 years ago, it was rare to hear Lenape mentioned. Uh, that's not true today. Baker is especially encouraged by young people who he said no longer buy the standard narrative of the city and the nation. They're asking hard questions. They're asking what happened. Manahata is on at the Public Theater until December 23rd. That's WNYC's Arun Venegopal. Thanks for listening to NYC Now from WNYC. Quick shout out to our production team. It includes Sean Bowditch, Ave Carrillo, Audrey Cooper, Leora Norm Kravitz, Janae Pierre, and Wayne Showmeister with help from the entire WNYC newsroom. Our show art was designed by the folks at Buck, and our music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. I'm Jared Marcel. Have a great weekend. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.